The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. Well, hey, happy Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> Somebody's excited about a day off of work. Well, we just finished up a semester of school. How many uh, other people finished a semester? <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what. I was so ready. This should be the wonder of a semester ending. That should be today's talk. But no, instead we're actually going to talk about um, the wonder of love and forgiveness today. So quite a, a big topic for half an hour, but we will try our best. So if you've been with us for the past few weeks, we've been talking about um, different wonders. Um, different things we experience as, as humans and throughout, throughout cultures, throughout time periods, uh, be it the, the wonder of nature and the beauty we see in that, or the wonder of the unknown. Corey talked about that last week. We talked about the wonder of peace and rest a few weeks ago, and talked about several others. And today we're going to talk about the wonder of love. And essentially, wonder is when you experience the sense of awe or the sense of longing for something and it's essentially just this short of worship because worship is when you know the object of who is giving you that wonder in and of itself but i think we all have these clues to what we crave uh, universally and that we have these wonders that we all experience and and i think there's a reason for that I think we were made to experience wonder and experience uh, the excitement of seeing those wonders um, actualized. And so today, we're going to talk about love and forgiveness, which is pretty intense. So um, this past week, actually, part of my job is I'm a graduate graduation counselor, um, and I get to do that for grad students at uh, Biola, which has all these different grad programs. And I absolutely love what I get to do because students come in, and I get to talk to them. My top two strengths are futurist and strategist. So to sit down with somebody and say, hey, what, what are your plans for the future and how can I help you get there? And then strategically get them there so they save time and money just thrills me. So it might not sound super exciting to you, but it is to me. And so the culmination of a whole year uh, of work came about on Friday because we had a commencement ceremony. So we got to see all these people that actually followed the plan that we set out, <laughs> some kicking and screaming, and they walked across the stage and it was really exciting. Um, but we actually had a commencement speaker there. Her name was Libby Little, and she shared a story uh, about her and her husband, how they'd worked uh, in the Middle East, and they actually didn't let us do any recording at the ceremony because um, if those names of where she is served went public, it could really jeopardize the people that are still over there right now. She and her husband had worked uh, for 37 years in the Middle East, and nine months ago, her husband took a team of nine other professionals, uh, nurses, doctors, dentists, optometrists, uh, they even had a logistician, and they trekked for four days on foot uh, to this remote, remote village uh, in this Middle Eastern mountain. And they served this whole village community for a long time, uh, stayed in a shepherd's hut every night um, just to get some, uh, some rest for their next day's work. And when they were on their way back down uh, the mountain to get back home, uh, they were ambushed by the Taliban, and all of them were killed, um, shot. Um, all 10 of them. And um, this woman is standing in front of the whole graduating class and all their friends and all their family. And the fact that she could say, nine months ago, my husband died for doing this work and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
And all I can think of is we need to show more grace to those people. We need to go and we need to love more. We need to serve more. <laughs> and I just sat there and I, I was having a really hard time not tearing up. And I'm like, okay, I need to be able to check people off on the ceremony line. So I need to hold it together here. But I was just so touched by the fact that this woman could stand there and she could say that when that was nine months fresh. And I think with this talk in mind for today, this wonder of love came into my mind. That that, that was awe-inspiring. Her statement to still love and to go and serve, and she still lives there and still serves there, and she just happened to be stateside uh, to do se several things, and one of those was speaking at our ceremony. But the fact that she is still serving and still loving and still uh, forgiving when that was done against her family. And so uh, today what we're going to talk about is this wonder of forgiveness. And I believe that we, when we receive forgiveness, it allows us to share that forgiveness with others. It allows us to walk in love. Because, I mean, you think about it, how many times you've been in relationship, which we're all in relationship always, be it with our, our friends or our family, our parents, our siblings. And when we experience unconditional love with them, that's when you know that love is real. It's when your love is tested by the fact that you've offended the other person and they still pursue relationship with you and they still pursue your betterment, even despite the fact that you've hurt them, that's when you know that love is real. It's when it's tested, it's when it's tried. And what's so difficult, I think, about forgiveness is when we actually receive forgiveness from another person, there's an implicit assumption in forgiveness that we've done something wrong. Which is why, <laughs> if you've ever been in a situation where you've hurt someone, um, but you still were pretty angry and not willing to kind of make amends, and they came to you first and said, I forgive you, how offended that could make you if you weren't ready to even receive forgiveness because you weren't ready to admit you were wrong. <laughs> okay, maybe that's just me that that's happened to. Okay, so, <laughs> sorry, Matt, you're stuck with me. Um, but, and, and even in our relationship, after we've had a disagreement or an argument, he's so quick to ask for forgiveness and move forward, and I am just hunkered down because I was right. And, you know, it, it, it's so silly. But anyways, I just receive infinite forgiveness from him, which is often how I know how much he loves me. And so today, we're going to take a look at this beautiful story uh, in one of the biographies of Jesus' life, and we're going to see this contrast that appears between um, a Pharisee named Simon and this woman uh, who was called, her positive in the scriptures is a sinner. And so we're going to look and see this contrast uh, that happens uh, in Jesus' life and how he kind of uses this as a teaching time um, for Simon, and, uh, and I think it, it'll be a lot of fun for us. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking in Luke 7, and I want to just set the story up a little bit. Um, so Jesus at this point uh, in his uh, life on earth, he's a grown man, he's walking around, he's gaining a lot of notoriety. I mean, he's doing all kinds of crazy stuff, healing people, casting out demons, teaching with authority, which was something the scribes couldn't even do because they were constantly interpreting what the Mosaic law said, the Torah, what was in the Old Testament. And they never spoke really with authority because it was, well, this is what we're interpreting from Moses. But then Jesus comes on the scene and he essentially is saying what has become our scriptures. So it was this brand new level of authority 
And for some people, they were super excited. Other people, not so much, especially the religious leaders. They weren't so thrilled that Jesus was getting all this fame and it was taking away uh, from a lot of their uh, teaching, a lot of their authority that they thought they had um, in the towns that they were living in. So a Pharisee, like I said, was a religious leader, typically an expert in the law, which would have been for us, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament, also known as the Torah. And so they would have been very respected in the community because it was a very religious community, a Jewish community. And so um, they would have been very honored. And in this society, honor and shame were primary dictates on how people would interact. So when you were in public, you would do everything you could to acquire more honor. And that might mean that you get into a public debate with somebody and kind of throw down a diss or something. I don't know exactly what they would call it back then. I guess just shaming somebody. Um, but like they would do constantly, there was this honor was always in uh, limbo and you could constantly lose it or acquire it. And so often what we see with the Pharisees is they would kind of engage Jesus publicly and try to trip him up. Because what they were trying to do was dishonor him publicly so that way people wouldn't follow him and that that would also increase their honor. So when Simon, this Pharisee, is inviting Jesus into his home, more than likely there is an honor play going on, kind of a power play, if you will. So having one, a celebrity, come to his house would have probably increased his honor, but then Simon and Jesus are in their own honor struggle, and we're going to see that um, kind of play out uh, in this scenario. Then you add to this the fact that women, sorry ladies, we just didn't have really any honor <laughs> at all because of being women. Uh, so for, you, you can read this in Philo and um, Tacitus, you can read it in all kinds of ancient historians that women were seen as a liability to honor. So what you would do is you'd protect, you'd cloister your women in the home so they couldn't go out and shame the family. Whereas men were seen as more of a positive honor, um, like addition to the family, and they could go out and acquire honor, but really, ladies, we were just uh, a risk. <laughs> so women were often not allowed to go out in public beyond going into the marketplace. Um, really, we wouldn't interact very much uh, in a public forum. I would definitely not be doing this uh, <laughs> in that Mediterranean context. So that also kind of helps set up this story a little bit. Lastly, just a little more context, hospitality is king in the Middle East, and that is still the case today. So that when you go into someone's home, how they treat you is also reflecting on their own honor and how much they wanna honor you publicly, because it, there was an open forum here, and we'll see that in a second. But you would definitely wanna honor your guest as much as possible, because that reflected positively on you as well as well as positively on your guests. Okay, all of that context and now we're ready to go. So we're gonna start in verse 36 and I'm actually gonna read all the way to verse 50 and then we'll go back through and kind of unpack more of what's going on here. So Luke 7, 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with them. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took a place at his table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. 
Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could both not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay, there's a lot here. But what we can see, even from the very, very beginning here, you have um, this public meal that's happening. And often poor people would be allowed to come to these meals. And at the end, they could go and get um, the leftovers that were not eaten. And so when we think, oh, this is an intimate dining room setting and nobody's really looking in. No, this was still more of a public event. Maybe his um, Simon's house might have been more of an open air type situation. But he also already had a whole lot of guests there and then potentially people kind of on the fringe waiting for them to finish the meal so they could get the scraps. So not just your intimate one-on-one setting here that's going on. And so you would have Jesus sitting at this table. And again, Tavos talked about this several times. In this Mediterranean style, the table would have been very low to the ground. So they actually would have been reclining, literally kind of laying down, propped up on one elbow. And the head of every person would have been closest to the table to eat. And you'd kind of just use your hands and you'd eat. And your feet would be away from the table. And there's a reason for that, because your feet are the dirtiest part of your body. And still today, and we have to be careful of this every time we go to Thailand, because uh, we, we take a team just about every year with our Beyond Us trip, and you don't mess with people's feet or their heads. The head is the highest part of the body and the most holy part of the body, so you don't touch heads. So when we go to different children's homes, we do duck, duck, goose, we don't touch the head. We touch the shoulder because you don't want to dishonor the person by touching their most honorable part of their body. In the same way, you don't point your feet at people. So like if you sit on the ground, you, often you want to sit with your legs crossed so your feet aren't pointing toward anybody because if you show them the bottom of your foot, it's like flicking them off. So if that's what you wanted to do. It's a little harder there if you're driving, apparently, to flick somebody off because you have to show them the bottom of your foot, which would be a good thing here if we, it was more difficult to do that. Um, but that's still the case today. The feet are the dirtiest, lowest part of the body. And you take on top of that, you know, Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling around. They don't have sewage systems. People, you know, you might go in a bucket in your house or it might be in the public baths that you would go to the restroom. But they would typically take that and they dump it on the street. Now, they didn't have Reeboks where your feet are covered in closed shoes. You're in sandals walking around on the streets where you've got human excrement, you've got the donkeys, you've got whatever goats and other livestock that have been walking around. I mean, you're traipsing through all this stuff. So typically, 
Are you having a hard time with that concept? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> My bad. Just calling it like I see it. Smell it. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I can't help it. Um, so anyways, you know, you're walking through this stuff and it's all over your feet. So typically when you'd come into a person's home, they'd give you a bucket of water to wash your feet and you would wash your own feet. So when Jesus, and Tapo talked about this a few weeks ago, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet in John 13, the reason that's also so crazy is because even the servants weren't required to wash the feet of the people they served because that was just a, that's so dirty, you don't even need to touch it. So when Jesus does that, obviously, it's a pretty big deal. So here we have it, and Jesus calls Simon out here, um, basically with not being given even water to wash his own feet. And that's why this contrast is so striking. So let's go back through here a little bit. Um, let's look back again at 37. And behold, a woman of the city who is a sinner, when she learned he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment. Now, it just says she was a sinner. Um, it, often when we read the story, we just immediately assume she was a prostitute. There may be good reason for that. When her hair was down to wipe Jesus' feet, that was not normally how women would have their hair. It would typically be up. If you were a proper woman, it'd be up and covered, typically. So the fact that it, she had it down and wipes his feet, she was potentially a prostitute, but it's not given for sure here in the scriptures. But uh, apparently, though, it was well known that this woman wasn't kosher. And that was literally. Um, so she brings in this white stone um, flask, and in that would have been um, this ointment standing behind him. This is what's interesting to me in verse 38. So you've got Jesus reclining a table. His head is at the table. His feet are away from him, and the other guests would have been in a similar position. And so then the woman comes in, and she doesn't even come to the front of him, even so that she would be in his eyesight or his line of vision. She comes behind him, and that's when she gets down on her knees. And we don't have that she says anything. It's like they're eating, and then this woman comes in uninvited, more than likely poor, and touching a Jewish man on the feet. Okay, she's not got anything in her favor at this point, and she doesn't even say anything. She, it just seems like she, and we don't have, if she'd had this interaction with Jesus before, I, I can't imagine that she didn't encounter him before tonight or before this night, but that somehow she'd had an interaction with him is what I'm guessing. And because of that interaction, she was so changed that then she interrupts this man, the men's domain, comes in, gets on her knees, and then does the most dishonorable thing she can do, which is to touch his feet. And not only does she touch his feet, she touches her feet with her head. Not only her head, but her hair. And hair was the glory of a woman. In this time period, this, and I just cut all mine off, I would have been up a creek. Uh, but, <laughs> is that translate, up a creek without a paddle? Okay, good. I was like, is that just south? Okay. But, you know, like, one, you wouldn't cut your hair like this then, ladies. You would let it grow as long as you could, and then you'd have it kempt up in a, in a bun of some kind and covered. So for this woman to let it down and then to wipe his feet, and also notice the order. It says, standing behind him, verse 38, 
at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet. After that, she anointed them with oil. If that had been me, I would have been dousing those with oil first so they'd smell good. And then I would have done all those other acts of humiliation. But she doesn't, which further highlights her humiliation and her humility in that moment. So she's kneeling, she's weeping, and enough to wet his feet with tears. I don't know if you've ever wept that hard where you have puddles on the ground, but it's apparently that's what she's doing. This was not just a, oh, I'm going to pat my eyes. Like this is a, she was weeping. You couldn't keep eating with this woman weeping like that. So she wets his feet and then kisses his feet. We just said where those feet were. I won't go there again. But she, and then takes her hair and wipes those, the feet and then anoints them with oil. Now, verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. I want you to notice a few things here. First of all, this woman, I believe because she has received forgiveness from Jesus Christ himself, she walks in freedom. She doesn't think, what are they going to think about me? She doesn't think, oh, I need to keep it down as I'm sobbing. She doesn't think, oh, I should put the ointment on before I kiss his feet. She doesn't think any of those things, but in that moment, in this overflow of her gratitude, because of having been forgiven, she acts in this self-sacrificing love. And I believe that she had far more freedom than Simon did. Because what is Simon's response? It's not, wow, this woman is, she is being changed. She's being restored. Something's happening. Something supernatural is going on because I know what she does. I know where she's been. And yet here she is acting like this. No. His response. Well, if Jesus was, if this guy was really a prophet, he would know who she is. So he uses her as this foil for Jesus's divinity. He uses her to then cast a judgment on Jesus himself. Not to mention judging the woman. <laughs> That's just a moot point. But then he uses that to say, well, he must not be really God. He must not be all that's cracked up to be because if he was, he would know what kind of trash was at his feet. And beautifully, Jesus says, Simon, let's have a chat. And he goes on here, verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, or denarii, the other 50. When they were both canceled, who was more grateful? And clearly, the one who had the bigger debt. And it's funny how Simon responds here. I suppose, like, I know I'm about to get it handed to me. Uh, but he knows that it's the one with the larger debt. And just so you know, like, quantitatively, um, uh, denarius was one day's work. So uh, 50 would be like a month and a half of your paychecks. 500 would be like a year and a half of your paychecks. So clearly quite a difference um, in those different uh, debts that were owed. So when he answers there, I suppose in verse 43, the, for whom uh, he canceled the larger debt. And then Jesus says, you have judged rightly. 
Now he really lets him have it. Verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. I want to pause there. As I was thinking through this passage, I've always been bothered just thinking through um, kind of the logical outworking of of just applying what Jesus is saying there, because I think I was misunderstanding the passage. But I was like, okay, so if, if I don't do a lot of really bad things, then I can't really understand God's forgiveness as much as somebody who, like, is a drug dealer. Like, I need to be a drug dealer and be forgiven of that to really understand how much God loves me. And I, I think there's a problem <laughs> with that reasoning. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think it's saying, Simon, you're such a good person, and this woman is such a bad person. And so that's why she gets it more than you do. Because that just doesn't make sense, honestly, if you think about it. Because it leads us to that conclusion. The more bad you do, the more you're forgiven for that, the more you're going to love Jesus. Uh, so I, don't, I really don't think that's what Jesus was saying. What I think he's saying is, this woman is aware that her reference point is not of this earth. This woman recognizes that it's not about being a good moral person. That being a good moral person is just not enough to live for. She's recognized that she is not God, but that God still loves her completely and totally. And no matter what she's done, she is forgiven and she is loved. That's why she's here. And that's why Simon is standing, pointing a finger. So I think this illustration makes sense. Okay, on the earth, Death Valley is the lowest continental landmark in the world. Uh, in terms of elevation. Mount Everest is the highest. I think Simon thought he was on Mount Everest, and he was looking down at this woman in in the, the depths of Death Valley. But the woman recognized that her perspective wasn't to to look at it from this angle, but instead she was zoomed out like if you were to be looking at the earth from the moon. You can't tell a difference between the heights of Mount Everest and Death Valley from the moon. And this woman recognized her reference point was the moon, whereas Simon thought his reference point was Death Valley. Does that make sense? Kind of? Okay, a few nods. That's enough. Um, (laughs) If you don't get it, we'll talk. I'll be back there. But Simon thought it was about being a good person. And he thought, well, what have I really done? Why, why, what do I need to be forgiven of? Whereas this woman had an awareness of how other she was from God. And I think Simon potentially thought he was pretty close there, you know, as a keeper of the law, as a respected Jewish um, religious leader. And so I think it was really a matter of of reference point there. And so then Jesus goes on and he says in verse 48, uh, he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And then again, Simon's friends, all they get hung up on is, who is he to say he can forgive sins? Clearly not getting it. <laughs> and, and Jesus doesn't really seem concerned about that. He seems far more concerned about this woman who has just humiliated herself to honor him. And so then he turns and he honors her. 
And he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so I think for us, just to think through that forgiveness received produces love revealed. Forgiveness received produces love revealed in the sense that the more we do understand how much we have been forgiven, that self-awareness, the more we are, we are drawn, compelled, urged to love others, to love God, because it's like, well, who am I to not? Who am I to begrudge someone else? Who am I to keep score? But I think it's, and I, of course, working through this, have been so challenged because I'm like, okay, how often am I even thinking about Krista? What, where, where have you just missed it today? Who, who have you just judged in your mind? Granted, you might not have said it out loud, but who have you just, ugh, you know, just went there in your head about them or just dismissed them or devalued them or who have you not pursued relationship with? I, I mean, just, we don't like to think about that, right? I mean, we, forgiveness is so hard, like I said, because the presupposition is we've messed up. And I'd much rather just think about I don't know, prettier things, just about love, honestly, but not about the forgiveness that leads me there. Because we talk about love all the time, don't we? But the forgiveness part, I think that's the harder bit to swallow. And so I just want to challenge you, like I've been challenged um, in thinking about this, is to just do some self-evaluation. What we see with this woman is she moved from self-awareness to trusting that, okay, yeah, I'm aware that, that I've missed it, that I'm imperfect, but I'm gonna trust that this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, that he really does love me and that he really does have the power to forgive me and transform me. So she moved from self-awareness to trust. And then because she trusted that, she received forgiveness. And then that forgiveness allowed her to show self-sacrificial love. And so I think, for all of us, we're in this journey together. We're all having a hard time being aware of our own junk and then moving forward. And maybe for some of us, we've never even, even asked at all for forgiveness because we've never even thought maybe that it was accessible or two that we needed it. And then maybe those of us who have stepped into a relationship with Christ and, and asked for his initial forgiveness, we forget how to walk in that. And we, we withhold forgiveness and we keep people in bondage to us because we don't want to let them go. We don't want to forgive. We don't want to love. We'd much rather just hold in that warm, warm anger because it feels so much better than the thought of them getting off scot-free. And I think that's where we need to come back and say, are we being more like Simon or are we being like this woman at Jesus' feet? Because I'd much rather just leave that person into God's hands and, you know, not let that keep me in a, in a vice grip of unforgiveness toward them. But I think for us to do that, we first have to receive that and realize, hey, I, I'm not far from that. I am the woman who is the sinner on her knees, just needing to be loved and forgiven. So let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much. Uh, for being unconditionally loving, for being love itself. And I thank you that you have chosen to step into our reality 
um, over 2,000 years ago and to become human on our behalf so that you could extend this kind of forgiveness to each and every one of us. It's something that's unmerited, something undeserved, but something you freely offer. And God, I pray that we would experience that maybe in a new way. For some of us, maybe in the, for the first time. For others of us, maybe it's being reminded of what you've done for us. And no matter how great we think we are, uh, we are still in desperate need of you. And God, I pray that in that moment of self-awareness and knowing that you are God and we are not, that we would trust that you love us and that you've forgiven us completely. And I pray that that would move us toward others to be agents of love through the power of forgiveness. God, that we would walk in the wonder of your love and that we would not settle for anything less uh, than what is supernaturally wonderful. God, I thank you for who you are. Thank you for taking that first step toward us and help us to take that step toward you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.